We've spent almost two years in the Gospel of Matthew looking at Jesus' life, what he did, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so now, today, we're going to take one step back and we're going to look at the Gospel in a nutshell. As simply as possible, as simple as I can make it, because I'm sure many of you could make it, probably articulate it better than I could, I like detail and specificity, so this is going to be a challenge. But as simply as possible, we want to say, what is the big picture of who Jesus is and what he's done? And then next week, Pastor Chris will be preaching on how what Jesus has done, how his life changes our lives. Uh, so that is the reason for this two-week mini-series, uh, because I'm bad at following instructions. So we're going to look at the gospel in a nutshell today through the lens of Ephesians chapter 2. So I want to invite you to join me in prayer to ask the Lord's help as we get started, and then we'll dig into Ephesians chapter 2. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our hearts are full, having sung these truths and meditated on your word through song and prayer so far this morning. Uh, Lord, I want to thank you for each person here. I thank you that you brought them here today. And Father, I pray that your spirit would help each heart here to hear your words and to evaluate how that should change what we believe and how we live. And Lord, I thank you that you know what each person needs to hear from your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use me, that you would use my words, and most of all, that you would use your scriptures to help us, help us understand them well and help us live differently because of our time here together this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. And as you do so, I want to help quickly try to orientate you to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is a letter, and one of the things I always drill into my Sunday school class that I teach during first service is to ask, why was this letter written? What clues can we piece together to understand what was going on in the life of the church that necessitated this letter being written? Well, Ephesians is a tricky one for that. Ephesians is written by Paul, probably while he's in prison. But Ephesians most likely was a letter that was meant to go to a whole bunch of different churches in the first century. It was probably meant to be passed around from church to church, and we actually have very little detail about what was going on in the church in Ephesus. We know there was a church in Ephesus, but basically Ephesus was a church in modern-day Turkey. Paul wrote this letter about 2,000 years ago. And for our purposes today, to try to keep things simple, Paul wrote this letter to help believers understand what Jesus has done for them and how they should live that out. Ephesians has six chapters. The first three are very much about who God is and what he's done. And that's where we'll be today in chapter 2. And then chapters 4 to 6 are very much about how we should live those truths out. So if you're in my class and you're wondering what's the occasion, I don't know. Um, so that one uh, gets away from us. But more times than not, that is a great question to ask. So we're going to look at this really in three sections. First, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3, where Paul is laying out for us what our spiritual symptoms are before we have trusted in Jesus. He begins in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, 
in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So we're going to see here, Paul lays out some symptoms of our condition before we've trusted in Christ. And the first one right off the bat is that you were dead. What does this mean to be dead? It doesn't mean that you don't have a pulse. It doesn't mean that you're not breathing. When we talk about spiritual deadness, what we mean is that we are spiritually cut off from God. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 3, where God created Adam and Eve, the first humans, and he was there, present with them in the garden. And he told them that they may not eat the fruit of the tree, and if they did, they would surely die. Well, we know that they spiritually died in that instant when they ate the fruit of the tree he told them not to. And that, is, that spiritual death is what brought all physical death into the world as well. But by God's grace, they did not physically die immediately. All of us, the scriptures tell us in the Psalms, we are born sinful. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have also, in addition to being born that way, committed many sins ourselves. And by sin, just generally speaking, we mean we have not lived up to the standard that God has for us. He made us. He has told us how we ought to live in his world. And none of us is able to uphold that. And so we are separated from God. We are cut off from him. And we are spiritually dead. The second symptom that we see here is that we are enslaved. We are in a state of bondage and captivity, being held against our will. And the unfortunate truth is that for many of us, that's been going on so long that we become accustomed to it, and it no longer jars us like it should. There are three things that Paul mentions here in these first three verses that enslave us. The first one is the world. He says in verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. When I think of what Paul's saying here, I think very much of us going with the flow, being comfortable. If you've ever been to an amusement park, have you ever been to one of the lazy rivers? You guys remember those? Michigan Adventure, I haven't been there in years, but they probably still have one where you're in a tube and you're just going down, you're floating along, and you better want to end up where you're going to end up because you really don't have any choice. I think very much of the world as this lazy river where you're just contently going with the flow of where the rest of those around you are going. And I think it lulls us to sleep, and we fail to see the urgency of the situation that we are living in. And we become enslaved by being lulled asleep. The second way that we are enslaved, Paul talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. If you read the New Living Translation, which is a translation I enjoy very much, it helps us a little bit and it tells us this is talking about the devil. 
the spirit, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the idea here is that Satan is the ruler of the spiritual realm of this world, that he is in a position of a certain uh, amount of authority and control over that. And if you think about, we're coming up on Halloween time, if you've ever seen someone kind of have ghosts to decorate, they hang them from the trees. Because there's this idea that spirits or ghosts are not bound to the rules of this world or matter or physics in the same way that we are. And this was very much the idea of how people understood angels and demons in the first century as well. That there is a realm of invisibility and unseenness that they are in. And we know that the city of Ephesus specifically had tons of temples to different Greek and Roman gods and that they would try to use magic or incantation to appease the spirits or to, to get them to do what they wanted them to do. And so Paul here, in referring to Satan as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, is speaking about him in a way that would have been very familiar. The second part of that is he says that he is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. One of Satan's greatest abilities is to blind our eyes to our present reality and predicament. In 1 Peter, Peter talks about Satan as prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. So he is our second enemy who enslaves us and holds us against our will. And then the third one that Paul mentions is the flesh. He says in verse 3, all of us, used, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Some translations just say sinful nature. And it's easy for us when we talk about sin, especially on Sundays at church, to think about sin as an out there problem. And sometimes we kind of have herd mentality and think if we kind of huddle together around other godly people, maybe the sin of our world and culture will kind of pass over like a storm and blow by and we'll be okay. Well, Paul's making it clear that that is not the case Sin is not only an out there problem, but it is an in here problem and an in here problem. We continue to wrestle with ungodly thoughts and desires. We want things we're not supposed to have. We want them in ways we're not supposed to have them. And we desire to be in control of our own lives and not have God in control of our lives. Those are the desires of the flesh. Then he brings up the third symptom in the second half of verse 3. He says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so our third symptom is that we are condemned. And the bad news for each of us is that we are rightly declared guilty. There's no hope of a mistrial. There's no hope of getting off on a technicality. All of us, have failed to live up to God's standard. And when we talk about the wrath of God or the anger of God, it's easy for us to kind of picture God as like a grandparent. They're not really up to date with the times. They don't really understand that it's okay not to wear a tie to church these days or things like that. That is not the case with the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's perfectly proportionate anger against the injustice of sin. God has laid out for us 
the standards of how we are supposed to live. And when we fail to live up to that, we bring harm to ourselves and harm to everyone around us. And God is rightly angered at that. I think it's very appropriate for us to have a righteous anger sometimes. I remember about a year ago, I was driving home with my oldest two children from church on a Sunday, right in Cedar Springs by 131, and I had a green light, and I was going straight, and a truck with a big trailer pulled in front of me and did not get to the intersection in time. And I remember slamming on my brakes and somewhat swerving to the side to not hit him. And I remember being angry, and I wasn't angry that I was going to be 10 seconds later. I wasn't angry that my brakes worked. I was angry that this person, in being in a hurry, had endangered my children. He could have just waited 10 more seconds and made the light just fine. By God's grace, we were fine. We all see things that make us say, that is not right. We know that's not how it's supposed to be. How much more so does God, who does not contribute to what is not right, have a perfect standard? And he is rightly angry when we don't live up to that. Not in a disproportionate way, but I would argue in a perfectly proportionate way to the wrongs that we have done. And so what is the diagnosis of these symptoms of being dead, enslaved, and condemned? It is fatal. There is no hope that we have in and of ourselves. And I think for a lot of us, Hollywood has ruined us when we talk about things being dead. Anybody remember the TV show 24? Anybody watch 24? All right, a couple of you did. Dun dun, dun dun, dun dun. So if you didn't watch 24, it was a show that had about six or seven seasons in the early 2000s. And it followed this hero, Jack Bauer, who was larger than life, and he led a counterterrorism unit. And the premise of the show, the reason it was called 24, was each season of the show took place over one 24-hour period. And so before each commercial break, because you used to not be able to stream everything you watched, you guys can ask your parents about it later, <laughs> between each commercial break, it would show you what time it was in the day of that season, and then after five minutes of a commercial, it would show you how much time has passed. And theoretically, if they drove from the airport to where they were fighting terrorists and it took 15 minutes, it would take 15 minutes within the show. But 24 broke me. It broke me of believing that someone was dead. Because someone could be shot, they could fall out of a helicopter, but if you didn't see their body in a coffin six days later, they were coming back in a future season, or it was going to be a surprise twist somewhere. And Jack Bauer would fight terrorists having taken three bullet holes. He was never completely dead. Or maybe for some of you, it's The Princess Bride, where I believe it's Billy Crystal's character where they bring Wesley after undergoing torture and he's by all appearances dead and Billy Crystal says, oh, no, 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 he's not dead. He's only mostly dead, right? <laughs> well, my friends, this is not the case when we are talking about spiritual deadness. And so many of us want to believe that we or our loved ones, that they're going to be just fine. And we justify it by saying, I know I'm better than some of these people. I might not be as good as some of those people. But I'm not the worst, so maybe I'm okay. Maybe I'm only mostly dead. 
You're not. Left to ourselves, we are all completely dead and cut off from God. And do not believe for a moment that there is any hope if left up to yourself. But then in verse 4, Paul gives us the most amazing contrast with this little word. He gives us the remedy and he says in verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So this, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. That only Jesus was able to be the Son of God who came from heaven to reach down into the muck and into the mire and pull us out. He alone was able to be the perfect spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, like we read about in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus alone, we studied through the whole Gospel of Matthew, perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And he alone is able to make us alive. Notice the language that Paul uses here in several places. He talks about how we are in Christ, or that we are with Christ. This is so important because what this means is that what happened to Jesus is what happens for us when we've trusted in him. So when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and mine, not his own, he had committed none, we died to sin there on the cross. And it broke sin's power and hold over us. But we know there's more to the story than just that. And it's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, that on the third day he rose again to new life and that the grave could not hold him as we just sang. And if we trust in Christ, we have new life in him because we are now with Jesus. We are no longer spiritually cut off from him. There's a couple theological words that we use. Paul mentions mercy in verse 4. God who is rich in mercy. God being rich in mercy means that God did not give us the penalty that we deserved for failing to live up to his perfect standards. The scriptures tell us that God made Jesus to be sin for us. We deserve the consequences for sin. We deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin that we have each committed. But Jesus, the scriptures tell us, drank that cup of wrath to the dregs for us. And this goes perfectly hand in hand with the second thing Paul mentions. He says in verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. And grace is kind of the opposite idea. Grace is the idea that God is, we are receiving what we don't deserve. We are receiving his kindness while we were still sinners and we hated God. We were in rebellion against him. And God, so rich in mercy, still graciously sent his son 
so that we get to be included in something we completely don't deserve. We get to be included in the relationship that Jesus has to his heavenly father, which is why we're able to be called sons and daughters of the king if we've trusted in Jesus. He alone is the one who is able to help those of us who are spiritually dead and cut off from God. Then look with me at the, oh, actually before that, I want to highlight one other thing in verse 7. The end of verse 6 and 7, notice that Paul says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. This is language of enthronement. This is language that's only appropriate to the king, that we are raised up and that we are seated with him. If any of you have ever worked a manual labor job, you never wanted to be found by your boss sitting down. Right? That sends a pretty clear message. I am definitely not working. Okay? But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father because his work is done. And he has completed it. The king is seated on his throne. And in this incredible way that I don't understand, we get to be included in that. In the reign and rule of King Jesus. And then the end of verse 7. This is so that God can show in the coming ages the incomparable riches of his grace. God is showing us off not because of how good we are. But to say, look how good God is. He can save someone like you and like me. I don't know about you, I can compare a lot of things especially when I'm trying to justify why I don't measure up to something. Paul tells us here, God's grace, it is incomparable. Go for it. Try to compare it to something. It will fall short. Then let's look at our new reality in verses 8 to 10. Paul says, he reiterates, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here we're introduced to the word faith. It's a word we talk about all the time. Most simply, faith is trusting Jesus to save you from sin and make you alive. doesn't take a lot. It takes a very simple prayer. Jesus, save me. I believe you are who you said you are and did what you said you would do. Make me new, please. And Jesus is delighted and ready to hear that prayer and forgive you because he's already paid for it on the cross. Paul makes very clear that this incredible gift of God is not something that we have helped in any way, shape, or form. There is no room for us to be proud or boast about it. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, not by anything that you do or are able to help contribute. It is the gift of God. Because the reality is that if we were responsible for a mere 1% of our salvation, 
we would be lacking in 1%. Because we would find a way to mess that up. But Jesus has completed everything that we need. And then he gives us this wonderful contrast in verse 10. He says, For we are God's handiwork, or some translations say his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the amazing thing. Now we can live for Jesus. But we're not living trying to earn his favor because he's already given it to us and we know we can't earn it. But now we're freed to live as a new person, as a masterpiece of what God is doing and what he's able to do. And so we don't need to be embarrassed that we were once dead. We don't need to be ashamed that we all know we are insufficient and don't measure up the way we ought to. It's not about us being able to do it. It's about how Jesus has already completed everything we need. And now we're free to go live as Jesus' ambassadors, to tell people how great God is that he's able to save us. We just saying that there's no sin that we can do that exceeds how God is able to forgive us. And I know we can do some pretty messed up things. But there's nothing you've done that exceeds the reaches of God's grace. So, to summarize as simply as I can, what is the gospel in a nutshell? What is the 30,000 foot view? First of all, everyone was dead. You'll never meet a person who was not or is not spiritually dead. It is an even playing field. Secondly, only Jesus can make you alive. If your hope's in anyone or anything else besides him, prepare yourself to be disappointed. Thirdly, he did everything, and you and I did nothing. And that's why that's good news. That's why that can be available to us. And then fourthly, that frees us up. Now we can live for Jesus. As I tried to think through this message the last couple weeks and pray through it, I thought of a few different situations that some of you might find yourselves in. Some of you might be here this morning uh, because a family member made you come and you don't really want to be here. That's okay. If that's you and you're saying, I don't know if I believe it. I think I'm fine. I want to encourage you and implore you this morning Pray a very simple prayer to God, something like this. God, I don't even know if you're real. I don't know what to make of being called spiritually dead. But if, if you are real, will you show me? If I am dead, will you help me understand that? Don't leave today not trusting in Jesus. Because none of us know what tomorrow holds for us. But we are all going to stand before God. And there's only two types of people. And I think we're easily, we want to believe there's three types of people. We want to believe that there are people who are bad and wicked and they deserve to be under God's righteous anger. And we want to believe that there are good people and we want to also believe that we're, we're better than a lot. So we're going to be okay. 
But that's not the truth. That's not the reality of the scriptures. There are two types of people. There are those who are going to stand before God and say, Jesus has paid for my sins on the cross. And there are going to be those who have no one to stand as a substitute for them. Don't be that person. All of us know that we don't even live up to our own standards. I disappoint myself daily. I'm sure I've disappointed many of you. I promise you I will not ever disappoint you more than I've disappointed myself. And I know that I will never disappoint myself more than I disappoint my Heavenly Father. If you've ever been angry, it's because you know you have an inability to control the circumstances around you and you know things are not right. And what those things that are not right are what the scriptures tell us is sin. Trust in Jesus today if that describes you. Some of us have been Christians or we've been in the church so long we don't remember when we were brought in. Maybe you were brought in in a bassinet. But some of us who say we're alive look pretty dead. Jesus had people in his day that he called whitewashed tombs who looked really good on Sundays. They looked really good on the outside. But inside, it was a mess. If that's you, trust in Jesus. Cling to the hope that he gives. You can't be in the world and following Jesus at the same time. Some of us, like I said, we disappoint ourselves and we disappoint those around us regularly. And if you're doing your best to follow Jesus and you're listening to this heavy truth about our spiritual condition before trusting in Christ, but you have trusted in Christ, I want to encourage you that you are now made new in Jesus and he has made you alive. So live like it. Don't be afraid to let people see your sin from where you have come because that shows how great our Savior is. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, live now for Jesus, doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Be free in that and live in that. Not trying to earn God's favor because he's already given it to you. But go out emboldened because Jesus has made you alive and included you in his relationship with his heavenly Father.